I began writing my memoir, Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, almost 10 years to the day after my father appeared at the shelter, the uh, Pine Street Inn in Boston. I need a dollar, 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 that's what I need. It's really the largest shelter in Boston, one of the largest in the country at that point. It had just recently opened. Uh, there were 300 beds there, and we'd have about another 150 sleeping on the floor. And if I share with you my story, would you share your Scan the corners, the edges, the just out of sight, the places men go to piss, any horizontal will do. One of those lights could be my father, but he keeps moving through the night, finds a stone mattress, dozes off. That's poet and writer Nick Flynn, and this is Sounds from the Street, where we talk about homelessness and life on the margins. I'm your host, Adam Campy. At age 24, Nick Flynn started working at the Pine Street Inn, the largest shelter in Boston. The homeless shelter, like homelessness, was a relatively new concept in the mid-1980s, a sort of analog, federally subsidized startup. If necessity is the mother of invention, well, the need was to house or warehouse people. The Pine Street Inn offered Nick not only a decent paycheck and dignified work, but ultimately and unexpectedly, the shelter inspired his moving memoir, Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. Today, Nick shares the remarkable story behind the story. And so I, I worked there for six years until the early 1990s and you know, started out as a fill-in staff, which basically meant you'd just sort of work on the floor, uh, work in you know, whatever needed being done. Uh, so I did sort of all the positions at the uh, shelter, all the different shifts. There's you know, the day shift and the night shifts and the overnight shifts. And just sort of got to know the, the workings of the, of the shelter, which was actually kind of being invented at that point, too. Unfortunately, I mean, there was always sort of a bit of a sick feeling that, uh, you know, we shouldn't make it too good just because it was, it always felt to me like we were trying to perfect something that was a mistake to begin with. So, you know, I'm not a big fan of uh, shelters as a final solution. The whole thing, even then, it was like, you know, you get a big shelter with 300 beds. Like, you know, it, it opened, it was beautiful, it was clean, it was meals, it was, you know, there's things there, but it also, it was a warehouse for, for people, you know? There wasn't the problem. If the problem is people don't have housing, this is not housing. This is, this is a, you know, taking a, many different social ills, uh, problems, people getting released from prison, from mental health institutions, uh, poverty, single mothers, you know, all these different problems, just putting them all in a warehouse and, and you know, out of sight. D.C. shelter resident Eric Thompson Bay. It's a lot of stuff going on in the shelter. A lot. Abuse. I see it. The guy that on the floor, he, he abused. He abused clients. And I got witnesses to that. Physical punches. This is a guy that run my floor, and it's a lot that need to come out, that really need to come out. At that time, there was a bigger one down in in D.C., something with the homes. There was a whole block in D.C. We we would go down there. It opened maybe after I'd started working there. It became this even bigger shelter. It was huge, huge, a whole block in D.C. Something for the homeless. Uh, Mitch Snyder was sort of this sort of very charismatic, formerly homeless person, uh, died tragically, uh, suicide. He hung himself in that building. You know, we would go down there, we'd stay at that shelter if we were doing protests in D.C. and stuff. But sort of an amazing guy. It was sort of very tragic when he died. How important it is to take care of yourself, too, in the midst of this, you know. 
I began writing my memoir, Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, almost 10 years to the day after my father appeared at the shelter. I'd been working at the shelter for three years and sort of had become uh, somewhat, you know, comfortable there, proficient, uh, you know, I was supervisor at times. Uh, the work seemed sort of really meaningful and uh, we were trying to actually change it and become more caseworkers and connect people with facilities, you know, outside of the shelter. And then uh, my father, who I didn't grow up with, ended up getting evicted from where he lived. He was living in a rooming house uh, in, in Boston. And it was at that time, the sort of a confluence of historical circumstances and my father's own demons, people were getting kicked out of these, they were being turned into condominiums, these uh, SROs, which all cities were sort of filled with for 30, 40 years, places where, you know, single men and women could go and, and, and live cheaply in cities and live whatever lives they, they lived. My father's case, it was one of a, you know, pretty hardcore alcoholism. So he got evicted from that place, you know, and he ended up in the streets and he, he assumed it would be a, a temporary situation because it, it had happened before with him, you know, he'd go on a bender and, you know, get kicked out of where he lived and he'd find another place. But at this point in his life, he was, he was in his late, late fifties. Uh, you know, maybe his options were getting thinner. It's a little less easy to crash with friends uh, when you're in your late fifties than it is in your twenties. You know, he showed up at the shelter, and he he'd probably stayed at the shelter before over the years. You know, it didn't seem like it was totally unfamiliar to him. Uh, he'd slept outside, you know, on, on roofs and stuff. He talked about that. You know, in between things, it was sort of a romantic adventure for him. You know, he'd drink and sleep out, and just you know, he'd, he'd scam hotel rooms and crash with friends, and then get a, get an apartment for six months, and he end up in prison, and and he you know he had you know a very colorful life and. Which I, you know, in my 20s, I could totally relate to. I wasn't exactly stable either, but it was a little more frightening to see someone in their late 50s who's, you know, been drinking for a long time so that the, the alcohol is starting to, to wear on him. And he showed up and he ended up being homeless, you know, what he thought was a temporary couple of weeks, you know, just to stop into the shelter. Ended up being five years. And uh, it's how he and I got to know each other because we didn't grow up together. So we got to know each other that way in the shelter. I'd like a room for the evening. I was raised Pleasure to see you, Nicholas, aside from the circumstances. I'm doing the same thing here as you are, gathering material. This is my life. Life is gathering material. Of course, writers, especially poets, are particularly prone to madness. So at this point, I asked Nick a really unoriginal question. Did he recall the moment he ran into his dad at the shelter? I chose to leave it in because the answer is too important. It seems like this, this sort of the central question that everyone sort of wants to know. And I don't I never understand it. Like, because I'm always like, what, you know, what, what did I feel or what, what was it like? Like, it's just, you know, he got evicted maybe two months earlier. About a month later, I saw him sleeping outside on a bench. And then about a month later, he showed up at the shelter. So there were many sort of steps toward it. So... The, the whole idea of a moment always strikes me as strange because it's, it's trying to sort of capture something that's much bigger. It feels very much like a daytime TV question where you're only allowed like one moment in your life that's really significant and you're allowed like two or three emotional responses to it. It was a whole kaleidoscope of events and, and a series of events, which, you know, most homeless people, it's not like one event that, you know, where they end up in the streets. It's political decisions being made like, you know, in Washington. There's a personal crisis that, that messes them up. There's own bad decisions they make. There's, you know a fight with a family member. There's so many things that lead to this thing. There's no, so to try to pin it on one moment is, yeah, reductive and, uh, and I think dangerous, actually. It's sort of, 
it, it makes it it makes it so that oh okay now we understand this and now we can sort of like either move on or say like this is how we should react to our homeless brothers and sisters and this is what caused them to be homeless when it's it, it's more complicated and, and and less complicated in a way you know it is like sort of like they don't have a home you know so we priority is to sort of figure out some sort of a, a housing situation for them and oftentimes at that point it seems like some sort of supported housing situation you know something that has some sort of uh, support in it so they don't end up, end up in the same place yeah, my father, in, in my poems, uh, my first book of poems, especially uh, Some Ether, he's, he's one of the main threads that goes through that book, uh, which, which is often the case for many people's first books of poetry, sort of presenting oneself and one's life to the world. Father Outside. A black river flows down the center of each page, and on either side the banks are wrapped in snow. My father is ink falling in tiny blossoms, a bottle wrapped in a paper bag. I want to believe that if I get the story right, we will rise, newly formed, that I will stand over him again as he sleeps outside under the church halogen. Only this time, I will know what to say. It is night and it's snowing and starlings fill the trees above us. So many, it seems, the leaves sing. I can't see them until they rise together at some hidden signal and hold the shape of the tree for a moment before scattering. I wait for his breath to lift his blanket so I know he's alive, letting the story settle into the shape of this city. Three girls in the park begin to sing something holy, a song with a lost room inside it, as their prayer book comes unglued and scatters. I'll bend each finger back until the bottle falls, until the bone snaps, save him by destroying his hands. With a thaw, the river will rise, and he will be forced to higher ground. No one will have to tell him. From my roof, I can see the East River. It looks blackened with oil, but it's only the light. Even now, my father is asleep somewhere. If I follow the river north, I could still reach him. Yeah, those are my first sort of attempts to write about him. And, and uh, you know, there's probably about five or six poems in there that sort of deal directly with him. And uh, I'm, I'm happy with the poems. I think that I think some are quite good uh, for, you know, I'm not saying if I can be objective about it, like they work as poems, you know, and uh, and I don't wince when I read them now. But but there's always something a little bit frustrating about it, uh, just because when you read a poem, you don't assume that it's, it's, it's not a documentary uh, project. It's not like, you know, people rightly don't assume that everything you're writing is a fact, is what actually happens. So there's this whole character in that first book of poems of a homeless father. And many people sort of read it as an archetype, like this is the archetype of the, the lost father, the alcoholic father, the wandering father. You know, at a certain point, I, I felt frustrated by that just because it some things do happen in this, you know, we do live in a postmodern world, but some things do happen. You know, not everything is just sort of based on subjective reality. You know, there is an objective reality also. And the objective reality is that my father was homeless. And, you know, it, it was a strange thing to spend 10 years writing a book and then to have people sort of dismiss, to feel like they, dis they were dismissing it as like, oh, this is an invention. This is an imaginative act, a metaphor. And, you know, it seemed important to me, like, to, to, to acknowledge that it was, you know, that this is something that really happened. You know, I hadn't read a whole lot about family members of homeless people at that point, you know, like, like writing about it. Because it, it was, you know, one of these, you know, it's a, a, it's a shame and a, well, you know, why is there a stigma around homelessness? I think it's, there's, you know, there's a failure within the family, you know, like family is just sort of centered around a home. And now one member of the family is, is outside that home uh, and, and living in, in very precarious circumstances. 
you know, people die in the streets. It's, 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 it's a public, it becomes a public display of failure or private failure uh, in some way. But in another level, too, it's also, you know, a, a display of, of the failure of the entire culture and the society. Uh, I mean, there are societies where there's just not homeless people. And America was not a society that had masses, you know, millions of homeless people up until, say, the mid-80s when we decided that that was okay. Marx has a quote, something about like for a 5% profit, you know, people pretty much won't compromise their moral, their morality. Uh, and then for, you know, 20% profit, maybe a couple things will be compromised. But, you know, this was a time when people were doubling the prices of their houses, you know, 100% profit. And, you know, Marx said like, you know, you, you would kill your grandmother for that. Like, and it just seemed like the society got caught up in that, that basically we as a culture were like willing to sort of accept masses of homeless people on our streets in order to have our housing prices doubled. That's a, a simple observation of it, but it seemed, seems true because it wasn't, it didn't exist before. You know, that was, that was New Delhi. Cultures that were, you know, that we perceived as being, you know, utter failures would allow like masses of homeless people on the streets. And then we became that culture and, and we accepted it. Now we've had a whole generation of young people who've grown up stepping over bodies. All over the city, men are falling, nosedive, header, crab walking from benches lower and lower until the ground rises up to catch them, until the earth says stop, until the sidewalk tilts and the lights go out. From above, with infrared, you can see them, the outlines of bodies dotting the city, falling to their knees, rolling onto their sides, frozen in a pantomime of sleep. Points on a map, an electrified tourist map, the scenic spots lit up, marked. Scan the corners, the edges, the just out of sight, the places men go to piss, any horizontal will do. One of those lights could be my father, but he keeps moving through the night, finds a stone mattress, dozes off. I did realize that, the, that you know, I was sort of handed this opportunity or this situation where, you know, I had quite you know, a deep knowledge and connection with, you know, someone who was homeless, uh, you know, even beyond what I would have had, like, working in the shelter. Uh, just the archetypal resonance of the homeless father and being the son, you know, I recognized as being powerful. And, you know, and I, I realized I just had to, like, sort of, like, tell the story as accurately as possible and adhere to the physics of the world, like, what... What happens when one is homeless? What happens, you know, what happens when you go into a shelter? What happens how you sleep outside? And, and then the rest would sort of coalesce around it. The, the, the sort of more archetypal energy would coalesce around it. And, and that it was, you know, it was this sort of responsibility too. Like, you know, if, if you're a writer and there's material, I, I hate to think of lives as material, but my father sort of did come into my life and, for, you know, many years, five years, we wrestled with each other in the shelter. And, you know, and I couldn't really write about it for many years after that. Uh, and after he'd been housed for like five years, you know, gotten out into Section 8 housing. But, you know, it just seems like if you're a writer, like this, this, this sort of the dark subterranean, subconscious, difficult, shadowy material is, is, is that's, that's your material. That's your, that's your job description. That's what, you're, that's what you need to wrestle with. I mean, anyone can wrestle with what everyone sees, you know. But if you're a writer, if you're an artist, you have to wrestle with the stuff that people don't acknowledge and don't, uh, can't quite articulate. And so... And the idea of putting a face on the homeless, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of recognize it, like, you know, you know that that would be uh, something that could come out of this, that, that, that would be, you know, a positive, you know, outcome of this. Although it's very difficult because, you know, my father's a complicated guy and he's not exactly like, you know, a poster boy for why one should fund uh, social programs, you know. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's certainly like a, you know, a near-do-well, uh, you know, he's fucked up every chance he's been given. He, you know, he, he's, he's a, you know 
totally non-repentant alcoholic who, uh, you know, continued to drink for 16 years after he got off the streets in his, in his Section 8 subsidized housing. You know, he just used his check he got every month to buy some more vodka. I couldn't pretend that this was like some sort of a redemption story. You know, it had to be that, yeah, people, people live their lives. People make choices. I mean, there's, there's plenty of billionaires that are sitting in their mansions getting drunk every night. You know, but that doesn't mean that they should be homeless. You know, and the only thing that keeps them from being homeless is they're billionaires. You know, and I just think that, yeah, we all like sort of make these mistakes. And like, you know, as a society, we sort of have to make a decision not to present someone as like some heroic, romanticized, poor person who is like, if he's just given a chance, will, you know, save the world. I don't disbelieve that, but this wasn't the case with my father. (laughs) You know, Uh, he's just a regular, regular fuck up who I still don't believe should be homeless. And he was able to take care of himself on his own in an apartment, which was much cheaper from an economic side. Him just being taking care of himself in an apartment, drinking whatever he was drinking was still cheaper on society than him living in the streets. You know, there's still more of a, you know, bang for your buck. You know, it would have been even cheaper if he hadn't gotten drunk every day. But, you know, I'm not in a position to judge, you know, when the quality of someone's life is enough that we should just sort of say, okay, they should just die which is what dumping someone on the streets is basically saying. You know, he's sort of thrilled that there's a book that, you know, the title comes from him. You know, Another Bullshit Night in Suck City is something that he said to me at one point when, uh, when I encountered him on the streets. You know, when I, I would be working in the shelter and, you know, would, would find him sleeping in one of his spots. And, you know, at one point, he, you know, he was, he was always sort of very full of uh, bluster and uh, that this was a wonderful opportunity. He's a writer also. And this is a wonderful opportunity for a writer to, you know, gather material. He was always just gathering material out there, like sleeping in a trash bag. He feels in some way it's his book, which in some ways it is. It has like, you know, it's filled with his life. You know, I mean, there's a debt to him. Uh, You know, he he did live a very colorful life. And a lot of the book is like, you know, takes the cadences of his voice and his, uh, you know, his stories. He was never able to write his own book, you know. He never sort of pulled it together to do that. I mean, he has a book, but it's not really, you know, that the alcohol sort of, derailed him, you know, over and over again. But he did have moments, stretches in his life where he would write quite a bit. And he has, I mean, he has, you know, just, just some of it right here. You know, his, his manuscripts and things, you know. So, uh, yeah, some of these are from when I was putting the book together and some from when I, I moved him out of his apartment uh, a couple of years ago into a long-term care facility. He, the alcohol once again caught up with him. I mean, I can't believe how many times it's caught up with him. But, uh, and yet he still some comes out of it somehow. Uh, so a couple of years ago, he was really going downhill again after living on his own for like 15 years. You know, I'd come and see him and bail him out once in a while. Managed to transfer him into yet his next, you know, probably his last living situation, which is this place where he gets, you know, fed every day and there's nurses around and he's, he's living like a king. So he's, he's happy. He's very happy there. <laughs> You know, and he's not, not going to die out on the streets, which is, which once again, through his alcoholism, was the risk. He was starting to forget that he had an apartment. I mean, I think the, the time of being homeless is so intense in someone's life that he still goes back there. If he thinks of what's going to happen to him if he loses this place, he just assumes he'll be back on the streets. You know, he doesn't really remember the apartment he was in that as clearly as he remembers the nights he slept out on the streets. Uh, you know, which are just, it's like a war. It's like, you know, it's like people, you know, you talk to people who've been in war and like that's like the most vivid time in their lives. And I think this for him was, uh, you know, having to survive out on the streets. That was writer Nick Flynn. You can learn more about his work at nickflynn.org. In the middle of the show, 
I played a trailer from the film adaptation of Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. The film is called Being Flynn, and it was released in 2012, directed by Paul Weitz. It stars Paul Dano as Nick Flynn, Robert De Niro plays his father, Jonathan Flynn, and Julianne Moore plays the mother, Jodie Flynn. So go check it out. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique Like a snowflake Distinct among snowflakes Unique in each way you'd conceive And now after some thinking I'd say I'd rather be A functioning cog in some great machinery Serving something to learn more about Street Sense, the nonprofit media center dedicated to creating economic opportunities for people experiencing homelessness, go to streetsense.org. And to hear more sounds from the street, check out streetsense.org backslash audio. Or find us on SoundCloud or the podcast app Stitcher. Please keep the conversation going on Facebook and Twitter at StreetSenseDC. Excerpts from Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, courtesy of W.W. Norton and Company. Father Outside is from the collection Some Ether courtesy of Grey Wolf Press. The Sounds from the Street theme song, I Need a Dollar, How to Make It in America, performed by Aloe Black from the album Good Things, used courtesy of Stone's Throw Records. The song was composed by Aloe Black with Leon Michaels, Nick Moshan, and Jeff Dynamite, used by permission of songs of Cobalt Music Publishing, EMI Blackwood Music Incorporated, slash Sony ATV. Excerpt of Helplessness Blues, written by Robin Pecknold and performed by Fleet Foxes from the album Helplessness Blues. Use courtesy of Sub Pop Records and by permission of Fox's Fellowship Care of Cobalt Songs Music Publishing. The following instrumentals, thanks to the Needle Drop Company. An Uneven Lie and Gravestones by Robin Allender. Somber by Jonathan Hadel. Filaments and Pretty Melody by Poddington Bear. 3AM by Gabe Castro. Mangata by Jean-Luc Hefferman. And Constantine by Oat Mellow. In two weeks, we're going to hear from Kate Coventry at the D.C. Financial Policy Institute. And we're going to talk about many things regarding homelessness and, and low-income neighborhoods, but mostly I'm excited to talk to her about establishing the winter plan, which sort of outlines what the city is supposed to do and the resources that are available for people who are out on the street during the super, super cold days in the winter. All right, thanks. Ciao.